calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. That it is. And it is the second week, our second week. uh, Our second week, yes. Technically the third week. Technically the third week, but our second week of Women's History Month. Yes, it is. And we are bringing you yet another feminist favorites because where would we be without them? Honestly, my favorite. They They are. are. And this week was so fun for me. Honestly, as absolutely infuriating as it was to take these notes by hand and then retype them on my iPad, I had so much fun learning more about the person that I get to cover. Okay, I'm really excited. I'm impressed that you wrote this out by hand. I probably would have gone to the library. I hate writing out notes by hand. Hey, if I had time to go to the library, I would have gone to the library. I'm like taking notes on my lunch breaks now. And like, Ugh. oh, I'm just like bringing a little notebook with me because I don't have a computer. Like I can't just do it really quick at home. So it just took so much longer. But I did figure out very last minute that if I updated my iPad, I could split the notes and the internet page on one screen, which was like a lifesaver. But I literally found that out this morning. So I was like, that eh, didn't really help me. Yeah, but it'll help you in the future. It will, so, so it won't be as horrible. To but let, To let the listeners in on uh, some behind-the-scenes action, I'm sure you didn't even notice because Madigan's editing was so seamless. But <laughs> Well, it literally was like us going, <gasps> and then it, it went back to the episode. If we had mentioned it or something, like I would have left it in because it was kind of funny. Like We're just talking, then all of a sudden we both just gasped really Kind of loud. funny in like a truly tragic way. In a very tragic way. The computer survived the rest of the night. I went to turn it on again when I got home, and fire happened like little sparks started coming out of it and started smoking that's that's not good yeah the Uh, dogs were really upset (laughs) yeah i'm sure they were so you know lesson 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 to the listeners champagne and uh macbooks don't they don't mix (laughs) they don't jive don't jive all right well i'm going first right Yes, I'm ma'am. set up like I'm going first. You I just are. Wanted you are. To make sure. I don't even have my phone picked up. That's like, what I'm saying. Like I'm all set up and you're chilling with yeah. your water. So I yeah. feel like I'm going first. I'm going to get into it. So way back when, I want to say probably four years ago in the first season of our podcast, I covered Helen Keller. 
Wow, like, really? Ages ago. I can't even remember. You know, I know, it's, right? It's funny that you even say it like that because like we don't even have seasons. It's just truly just. Did a I never, call it a season? Yeah, it's just a, <laughs> it's just one long marathon, really. Like, so I'm like, I don't remember that far back. We've no, had, no, no, no. Like I, 405 episodes. This is our 406th episode. We deserve so. a prize. We deserve <laughs> a prize. Um, but anyways, I covered Helen Keller and I was listening to the most recent episode of Crimes of the Centuries, which you I listened to it too. Listen yeah. to, I'm sure. And it was about the Tewksbury Alms House. Yeah. And the Tewksbury Alms House was this home for at the time what they would call like the insane, like the undesirables, essentially. And or just the really poor sometimes. Or the really, too. really poor. Yeah. yeah. And most of them were uh, Irish Catholic immigrants from the time and Anne Sullivan was one of them as a child and I was like wait what that's wild I didn't know that she came from that kind of history which made me more curious about who Annie Sullivan was and I found the most information from I think it was the Perkins website it was like AD something I'm gonna link it in the show notes because they had every freaking detail of this woman's life it was almost overwhelming but really really cool and she's just awesome really really awesome yeah I learned a lot about her I was in the miracle worker the play on stage whenever I was like 18 who are you Look, there's only two non-white characters, three non-white characters. They couldn't cast outside race, really? Not where I was doing theater at Or the like time. a children's show? Well, it's not really a children's show. Like it's the the play isn't Oh, just, but were you doing it like for school or were you doing it for like a like a No, it was for like a community theater. Like But still in our community theater, we would always like mix it up. Not not at this place. Jesus. Not where I was. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say Helen. No, but it was still a really wonderful experience. And I did learn a lot. The woman who was directing that show was like a um, Helen Keller historian. So she oh. actually gave us like packets of information Ooh. on like Helen Keller and and uh, Annie Sullivan. I love that. Beforehand. But that was so long ago that I don't remember a lot about her life. And I am very eager to learn. Yeah. Well, I'm going to talk about it either way. Even if you remembered everything, <laughs> <laughs> I would make you sit through it. So Annie Sullivan was born on April 4th, 1866 in Feeding Hills, Agawan, Massachusetts. The name on her baptismal certificate says Johanna Mansfield Sullivan, but she always went by either Anne or Annie. She was the eldest of three kids to mom Alice and dad Thomas, who emigrated from Ireland during the Great Famine. Imagine potatoes just fucking up your life that bad. The potato famine. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, to be without potato. Wait. I don't know anything about the potato. Oh, family. okay. So I did take some notes about it, but I didn't add it into my type notes. It's kind of interesting because it's essentially like they were getting the potato plants were getting infected and making everybody sick. And then like a lot of like poverty and other shit started piling on top of it. Again, I did okay. not add any of those notes. But the Irish potato famine really is fascinating. No, I knew it was a big deal. I just didn't want to speak on it and be wrong. I so, feel you. I don't, I'm not trying. Like I'm sure I'm like missing a whole point of it too. But what I got out of it was like these potatoes were getting infected and people were eating all these potatoes and getting sick. Yeah, things like that. But there was also like poverty so they and job loss and things like that going involved. So all GTFO of these out of Ireland. Yes. And hey, we're recording on St. Patrick's Day. I know. That's what I'm Look talking about. I was thinking about that when I was taking my notes today. When Annie was five years old, she contracted a bacterial eye disease called trachoma, which caused painful infections and made her go nearly blind. She would get like sores and stuff like 
under her eyelids and on her eyeballs. Like it was really, really painful stuff. When she was eight, her mother passed away from tuberculosis, the number one mom killer of all time. Yeah, I'm sure there was a moment when she coughed into a white napkin and we all knew what was happening. And they're like, she's got consumption. Yep. Every time. Terrifying. Always used to think of Moulin Rouge, too. Oh, yeah. I think she had TB, right? I believe so. Yeah. I always I always look it up when I watch it because I forget. But I believe you're right. So her mom passed away when she was eight. And then two years later, her dad was like, I can't with these kids. I have to get rid of them. So he leaves the youngest daughter, Mary, with an aunt. But apparently Annie and her brother, Jimmy, were like too unruly to go to this aunt. The aunt was probably like, I don't want to deal with these kids. No, she's an Aries. That, oh, yeah. Oh, Annie. Annie is... Yeah, Aries energy. She's got yeah. a hot, hot, hot temper, like a really hot temper. She's like, I can't deal with these kids. So Thomas, the dad, just dropped them off at the Tewksbury Alms house and that it was not a great place for a child to grow up. What a time when you could just be like, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. I, let me just drop them off at like a legit asylum. Yeah. It's not even an orphanage. It's terrible. So if any of you have watched American Horror Story, the asylum season, it's kind of the vibes we're getting here with this Tewksbury Almshouse place. Um, There was like, it was way over capacity. It was legitimately like a jail. They were called inmates. They were made to do like manual labor for free, (laughs) like all of this stuff. And they were treated really horribly. There were lots of allegations of sexual abuse, physical abuse, and even cannibalism. Yeah, so this place was not a great place for anyone, let alone a 10-year-old girl who also really wants to protect her little brother. They would normally divide everybody up by gender, so she was to be separated from Jimmy, but she is that fiery Aries, and she was able to stay with her brother. But unfortunately, three months into living at Tewksbury, Jimmy died in the same manner as his mother, Oh, leaving Annie all horrible. alone. Horrible. Oh, and so scary to be alone in a situation like that. Yeah, she writes later in life in her, I don't know if it was a book or if it was just like a bunch of published works, but I'm going to be quoting it a lot during my discussion of Annie. It's called Foolish Remarks of a Foolish Woman. Oh, wow. Right? So she says at that time, at times melancholy without reason grips me as a vice. A word, an odd inflection, the way somebody crosses the street brings all the past before me with such amazing clearness and completeness. My heart stops beating for a moment. Then everything around me is as it was years ago. Even the ugly frame buildings are revived. Again, I see the unsightly folk who hobbled, cursed, fed, and snored like animals. I shiver recalling how I looked upon scenes of vile exposure. The open heart of a derelict is not a pleasant thing. I doubt life, or eternity for that matter, is long enough to erase the errors and ugly blots scored across my brain by those dismal years. She's quite a writer. She's an amazing writer. Yeah, that's... I mean, it paints a picture. Mm -hmm. So like we talked about, Anne had a very fiery temper. She was known to act out. And a lot of it was because she really hated where she lived. She was not really taking this lying down. The others around her would tell her to resign herself to the institution and give up on finding a way out. But she was just like, no, like I have to get the fuck out of here. 
During this time, it also seems like she lost faith in what organized religion taught, but was still very proud of her Irish Catholic heritage. There was actually something that she wrote in a letter to Helen years later, because I believe, if I remember correctly, Helen was a little bit more religious, where Anne had a bit more of a complicated feeling when it came Mm -hmm. to religion, specifically organized religion. She wrote to Helen, I am fond of the Bible as poetry. I find beauty and delight in it, but I do not believe that it was any more inspired by God than all fine writing is. And that's literally wow. like what we were saying. We said it in an episode recently where I'm like, the Bible is full of great stories. Right. And you, re- you read them like stories. Also, you know? there's this idea to me with what she said there where she said it's no more inspired by God than other fine writing is, which yeah. is basically saying that like, yeah, I mean... Everything, if, if you believe in a higher power and you believe in God, then everything beautiful in art comes was also through him. inspired by God. Yeah. You know, you believe so. that our work comes through him. Right. If that's your belief. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's really beautiful. Actually. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, you're going to love all these quotes then. While living at Tewksbury, she had two unsuccessful eye surgeries. She was then sent to a hospital for another failed surgery. Then she was sent to the city infirmary for, you guessed it, yet another failed surgery. Although she was probably pissed that they kept poking and prodding at her eyes to no avail, she liked living in the state infirmary and was carried back to Tewksbury, kicking and screaming, six months after her departure. Eye surgery... At that time period, can you imagine no. anything scarier? Like eye surgery now, like our friend, my my co-host on my worst date, Christina, she has to go in. She's had like several surgeries on her eyes. Yeah. And she has to go in again to get another surgery on her eyes this year, I think. And I am like, she described the surgery to me and it's horrifying. Like they have yeah. to take her eye out <gasps> of its socket. Oh, no, 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 right? no, 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 no. And she's, that's like my biggest fear is that I'm yeah. going to like have it in my hand. Yeah. And she's done this before. Like, it's not like the first time she's oh had God. this surgery done. So that your reaction right now, it is 2022. Imagine. Oh my God. Like it's like civil war. They're going to take it out of her head. Yeah. Can they take a picture? Oh, why would you want that? I want to see like Christina. I don't know. I just want to see. I don't want to Google it, but I, I don't know. She's going to be like out. Oh my God. She's, she's gonna well, be I know she's going to be out, but like let me take a selfie i don't oh. know like the doctor like hey and I, I don't want that but like i'm curious so, i'm like, just part saying of me does but like oh my god eye surgery period. out of her socket oh my god yeah i need to clean my brain now sorry <laughs> oh my god okay <laughs> so anyway annie sullivan had a bunch of surgeries where they probably had to do something equally as terrifying well, but probably with like less like ways to put you under and yeah. things like that like this is the 1800s yeah this they is just not- gave her some fine irish whiskey and we're like good luck uh, moving on all right <laughs> So when she returned to Tewksbury, instead of staying with like the drunks and degenerates and things like that, they let her live with the single moms and unmarried pregnant women, which was probably like the first time she had experienced like motherly affection and other like support from women since she was very, very young. Since she was eight and her mother died. Annie was now even more determined to break herself out of Tewksbury. She had heard of the Perkins School for the Blind and desperately wanted a formal education. Her chance came when an investigation into Tewksbury began in 1880. When the State Board of Charities arrived, she flung herself at a man named Frank B. Sanborn and cried out, I want to go to school. 
She was then quickly accepted into Perkins because that guy was there to like investigate the shit going down. And he's probably like, this little girl really wants to school, probably took a little liking to this little spitfire and was like, let me help you get there. Yeah. Let's take a quick break since it sounds like we have a little moment before Annie packs her bags and heads off to school. So let's take a quick break and we will be right back. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. And we're back. Here we are. But unfortunately, going from asylum to school would not be an easy transition for Miss Annie. She was used to the noise and commotion of Tewksbury, where Perkins, everyone was quiet and polite, except her. (laughs) She was very loud. She talked back. She struggled with the curriculum. Uh, She had really been given no formal education, and she was blind, so she didn't know how to read. She didn't understand the manual alphabet. And essentially, the way that it worked at Perkins was that they immediately bombarded you with tons of vocabulary and would immediately start signing into your hands. And she didn't understand what anything meant, so the other kids would tease her. And it was really hard for her and feeling, again, like she was really left out. Gosh, this is so rough to think that this could be your childhood. I know, but she is like... She's very different than me because when people put me down for something, especially when I was little, if I was teased about something, I would never do it again. Or I would try my hardest to never put myself in that position again. Where instead of being totally downtrodden because she's being called stupid, she kind of has that attitude of like, I'll show you. And it made her work even harder. Where for me, I'd be like, leave me alone and go cry in the corner. She's like, okay, well then I'm going to work that much harder. Soon she was an avid reader and lover of poetry. She particularly enjoyed Shakespeare. Annie felt very isolated from the other kids at school and was always getting in trouble and getting suspended. She later wrote, I was extremely conscious of my crudeness, and because I felt this inferiority, I carried a chip on my shoulder. She learned the manual alphabet from Laura Bridgman, who was an alumni of Perkins and the first person with deaf blindness to get a formal education. A year after being sent to Perkins, she was sent to the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary, where she had two successful eye surgeries. Finally, because of this, her sight greatly improved after 10 years of being almost completely blind. I cannot imagine what that must feel like to not see for 10 years and then then suddenly get it back and be able to see something because I know that her eyesight was never like it was never great right yeah Yeah, but like at least you know to go from almost nothing to being able to at least see shapes and kind of see people like that's wow yeah but that's why she always wore those kind of like dark glasses glasses was because like I think her eyes were also so sensitive to the light and things like that probably because she couldn't see for 10 years like anything was probably really overwhelming to her eyes She remained a diligent student the rest of her time at Perkins and was named valedictorian of her graduating class in 1866 when she was 20 years old. The summer after graduation, the head of Perkins, Michael Anagnos, was contacted by Arthur Keller, who was looking for a teacher for their deaf-blind six-year-old child, Helen. Anagnos referred Annie, and she made her way to Alabama on March 3, 1887. But it wasn't that simple. 
Annie almost didn't take the job because she assumed correctly that the Kellers were on the side of the Confederacy during the Civil War and had probably owned enslaved people. Yeah. Yeah. Annie wasn't one to keep her mouth shut and definitely made her comments to the family about her feelings. But she was also immediately drawn to young Helen and wanted to help her. So she was kind of like, fuck you, people. You're assholes. Like... I don't really want to work with you. But then she met Helen and was just so drawn to this little girl who so clearly needed her help that she was like, I need to put the parents and their bullshit aside and not put that on the kid. It doesn't change her beliefs. Yeah. She, you know, at the same time, there's this girl who's growing up in this household where she She probably felt like she wanted to save the girl from it, too. You know? Yeah. And I think I think without Annie Sullivan, Helen would not have been as progressive as she was. I think Annie is the reason that her mind was changed because Helen was raised with these stories of the old South and she would tell them to Annie and she'd be horrified. And Helen would be like, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, obviously the conversation isn't going exactly like that. But, you know, like that wasn't normal for Annie and that was kind of a shock to the Kellers for the most part. Now, if you've seen the play or movie The Miracle Worker, like Keegan mentioned, you know that Helen also was a bit of a problem child. She had a lot of temper tantrums and was very unruly. Because Which wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you be if you couldn't speak, couldn't see, and couldn't hear? How else are you going to get your needs met? Right. So she was very much seen as this like spoiled child as well because like she was. She had no way, way else to be. And you also, know? you know, for all their faults, the Kellers and their beliefs and, you know, everything else... I can also understand with a child like that, if they did, quote unquote, spoil her, wouldn't you? I feel like that would kind of be the instinct is you're always trying to make sure they're being taken care of. You're always scared that you're not fulfilling their needs or that they're not happy. And totally. I think it was more like in her being very demanding that they spoiled her because I think it was like she didn't have a way to communicate things with you so she had to be so demanding yeah I'm just saying I don't really fault the parents in this case and usually I will like if if a kid is spoiled I'm like ugh. but But there's no way that they can even communicate with their daughter to teach her proper manners the only way this was going to happen was for someone who had proper education to be able to come in and teach her and that's exactly what Annie ended up doing so initially she thought that teaching Helen the same way that Perkins taught would be helpful so she immediately started signing words into her hands and adding new vocabulary all the time but it ended up being really overwhelming for Helen and she wasn't really learning anything and so Annie realized that if they started with words and things that meant something to Helen or that was like part of her daily life. She would maybe connect with them more and learn better, which I think is kind of just how all schooling works. When you can connect something to a child's interest, it helps yes. them learn. Oh, right? of course. Yeah. She also believed that there needed to be separation from Helen in the main house in order to teach her some obedience because she believed that that was kind of the first step into having your education. So during this time when she was first starting to teach Helen, she was still in correspondence with a woman named Sophia, who was kind of a mother figure to her at Tewksbury. And she would write her these letters. And in one of them, she wrote, the more I think, the more certain I am that obedience is the gateway through which knowledge and yes, love to enter the mind of a child. Within six months, Helen had learned more than 575 words with the manual alphabet, some multiplication tables and the Braille system. Next, Annie wanted to communicate the meaning of words to Helen. It's pretty infamous, but the first word Helen fully understood was water. 
Within weeks, she understood over 100 words. Annie wrote to her friend, I thought my heart would burst. It was so full of joy. Wow. I mean, it's truly inspiring. If you've ever seen the movie or the play, that moment never ceases to be inspiring to me. Like it doesn't matter how many times I've seen it or in what medium I've seen it. But that moment when she... You know, finally gets what water uh-huh. is. Yeah, like it's your eyes just like tear up, and you're like, oh, well, because she's so she's excited, so proud, right? Know? And I love, I love when other people get so excited for others' accomplishments like that. Like, and that's such a teacher thing. Like feeling that sense of pride in your student in doing something. Well, and, like, oh, and that understanding that understanding that the world is just opened up to this person. Yeah, I think that that's something that's like is never lost on me in that scene is that like now she has the capability for the entire world to open up yeah. to her because and she as understands soon as vocabulary. she gets like one thing yeah everything else comes to her like she is super friggin smart like really really smart one of the other ways that Anne wanted to teach Helen was by using her other three senses, which I think is really smart. So they did most of their studying outside. They would always do long walks right after breakfast and things like that. Uh, you know, the smells and the touch of different things really helped Helen understand what different things were. With Helen's progress, Annie believed that she would benefit to going to Perkins herself. Once they agreed, Annie and Helen set off for Boston in 1888. At school, Helen was like a prodigy. She loved to learn and soaked in information quickly. Helen and Annie became kind of famous in their circles there as well. Helen's success in school helped them gain funding and donations, as well as making it the most sought-after school of its kind in the country. Things weren't all sunshine and rainbows personally, though. Some of the staff believed that Annie had too much influence over Helen. Once after Helen was accused of plagiarism, the fault landed on Annie, who was so hurt that she left the school and never returned. Like they would remain on like good terms because they kind of helped each other out a lot. But Annie was very offended and very hurt. She seems like a very proud person. Yes, because there was like a story that Helen wrote that sounded very similar to another like more famous story. And they were like, well, where would she have heard this if not from Annie and all this stuff? And I think she was very offended. I don't know if you know, there really was plagiarism, but Annie was definitely very much like, fuck you, Helen didn't cheat. How dare you like claim that I did? I don't know. I also feel like jumping straight to plagiarism and I don't know this story or anything like that, but like I definitely absorbed, when you're a child and you're absorbing information, I feel like sometimes you will repeat that information or even full passages kind of chopped up in a different way. Yeah. I know I definitely did that in and school. And I think she would Not be like a middle school age person. So right. that would make sense. Well, you're inspired. Everyone's inspired from something that already exists. Right? right. And you don't necessarily put the pieces together all the time. Like as an adult, yes, when you have like more of an ability to like understand that sort of thing. Yeah. But as a child, I'm certain. And you have more responsibility. Yeah. I was only exposed to X number of of stories or information. Right. Yeah. So I'm sure that I was inspired by that. And exactly. in some cases, probably spit up things that were very very similar to other things and it wasn't necessarily that it was plagiarism it was just that it lived somewhere in my brain and I pulled it back up yeah you know like yeah so there was some other places some other schools that they would attend to further Helen's education where other staff members would say that Anne had too much control over her and the way that Helen thought and I almost feel like that was kind of like 
I don't know. I get like some sexist vibes from that. And I also get just some prejudice vibes because I think Helen's way of thinking changed so much because of Annie that people saw her as being like manipulative and controlling. And she was very hard on Helen too. Like she could be a little bit like rougher with her because like that's how their relationship was. Also look at how Annie was raised. Yeah. Like, you know, she was not timid in any warm and fuzzy kind of you know but what's not her communication style no but what I love though is that Helen always described her as being very generous like she was I think she and Helen really had this like weird special connection between one another where like Annie felt like no one else could ever tolerate her temper but like Helen saw nothing but her generosity and kindness and I think that's really wonderful too she just never and the whole family was always so behind Annie even when someone else came in and tried to kind of take over that role the family was like no 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 like Helen and Annie stay together they're a team by the age of 10 Helen wanted to learn to speak Annie took her to the Horace Mann School for the Deaf in Boston, where Helen received lessons from their principal, Sarah Fuller. Helen was never fully satisfied with her speech, which was often hard to understand. In May 1888, Annie, Helen, and Helen's mom were invited to meet President Glover Cleveland at the White House, accompanied by Alexander Graham Bell, who had come to know the Kellers and Annie. It was upsetting to Helen and Annie both that all of the attention seemed to be on the student, Helen, rather than the teacher, Annie. But this didn't cause resentment between the women. It just pissed both of them off a little bit. Because Helen herself was kind of like, why are you only paying attention to me? Like, this is the person that taught me everything. And Annie was kind of like, yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? I, I feel like that's human nature, though. It's yeah. like, we love a success story. And yeah, of a Helen, little girl. Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. but we, but Annie was a success story. But right. hers wasn't as, like, publicized and as mm-hmm. known. Except for when it came to Mark Twain. Mark Twain was also really unhappy that Annie didn't get the respect that she deserved. And he was actually the first one to call her the miracle worker. Oh, wow. Isn't I that cool? I didn't know that. Look at that. Fun facts all day. In June 1892, Annie was elected to be a member of the American Association to promote the teaching of speech to the deaf. Bell asked her to give a speech at a meeting in 1894, but Annie was so shy that Bell delivered the speech for her. Unfortunately, in 1901, Anne suffered a stroke and lost the vision she had obtained and was completely blind. Oh, that is so devastating. I know. They said completely blind, but then there are times that they're still saying that she's able to do some work with Helen. So I'm not really sure how completely blind she was, but she pretty much lost like all the sight that she had gained had been lost. Oh, that is so sad. I know. I know. But even still, she was able to go with Helen to Radcliffe College and Helen was able to graduate because Annie literally like dictated every textbook and every lecture into her hand and would help her like dictate all of her papers that way as well. So just as much as Helen was going to school, Annie was kind of going to school as well. The dedication to do that, you know, that's love. That is love. And that's really wanting the other person to succeed, too. Like, she traveled with Helen everywhere to help her succeed further. It's so beautiful. In 1903, Helen published her memoir, The Story of My Life, a year before her graduation from Radcliffe in 1904. That same year, Helen and Annie bought a farm and seven acres of land in Wrentham, Massachusetts. In Helen's 1955 bio, she would describe the years at the farm as the best of their lives. On May 3rd, 1905, Annie married John Macy. 
They had met when John was assisting them in editing the serialized version of Helen's memoir in 1902. She's so, an older woman at this point, right? She is. Yeah, I want to say she's probably got to be closer to her 40s, mid 40s, something like that. Yeah. Um, to work with Helen, John learned the manual alphabet himself so that he could work directly with Helen and not have to work through Annie. So I think that was probably something that like was very appealing to Annie that this man would take the time to work with his client that way instead of just yeah. assuming that Annie would help out. Yeah, I I want to point out really quickly that I don't think getting married in your mid 40s is like ancient or anything. No, I'm just but for at the this time, time yeah. it is ancient. Like yeah. you're a spinster, you know, yeah, fully. I'm sure people fully expected like you are a woman in your mid 40s living with another woman on a plot of land. Yeah, at this point. they sure probably thought like, it was like a Boston marriage kind of deal yeah. in Massachusetts. So yeah, yeah, really, people were like, oh, we can just write off Annie. Yeah. And then surprise, everybody. Surprise. Though they liked each other right off the bat, it would take multiple proposals for Annie to say yes to John, though. For one, she didn't think that John could handle her fiery temper, and he was a Protestant and she a Catholic, even though she didn't really have the same, like feelings uh for the religion of Catholicism. She was Irish Catholic. And to her that was kind of like is part of her heritage. So bizarre to me. I know. The things that stick around. Right. I'm not judging at all. Like, Mm. it's just such an interesting thing to me. The things that you cling to that stick around with you. Yeah. From your childhood or from your heritage or whatever. Uh You know, it doesn't necessarily make any rational sense. It doesn't. But she's like, this is a reason. Like, you shouldn't marry me. Well, they did get married. They got married in the living room of their Rentham house on May 3rd, 1905. There were only 20 guests and Annie made the cake herself. John moved into the farm with Helen and Annie, and the three seemed like a very happy family. Good friend and editor of Century Magazine, Richard W. Glider, wrote of Anne for her wedding, She is one of the women of our times. Her fate, her happiness are matters of interest to many. She too should be a writer, for she has shown great force of direct, sincere, discerning narrative. A great wedding announcement, right? (laughs) And she should be a writer. Yeah. Like, did Annie write? much like she she did write a lot personally like the foolish thoughts of a foolish woman is uh-huh. like a big compilation of like kind of her like memoirs I believe and things like that but they were more like personal but things they weren't I she didn't think, publish a book I don't think so I'm gonna have to look into that more but like she really did help Helen write so much stuff and did a lot of writing but I don't really know what for I'm always so amazed because I've been reading so much more lately and reading a lot of different kinds of books. And you can always tell when you're reading the writing of someone who is just naturally gifted with yeah, words. Yeah. And it sounds like she was. Yeah. Like just naturally really gifted at stringing words together. 100%. Yeah. yeah really, really good. So eventually she and John split up. It's unclear how that happened or why. Um, but by 1916, I believe, he was not married to her anymore, but it says on the U.S. Census records that he was a lodger in the home until 1920. Interesting. Interesting. I'm just nosy. I just want to know what happened. I know, right? In February 1913, Annie and Helen began a 15-month lecture tour to help supplement their income. Annie's contribution to education was increasingly recognized, finally, as was her stature as an important American woman. Which is what I, I want to be called, an, an important American woman. <laughs> Me too. Same, goals. <laughs> she was honored with a, quote, teacher's medal in 1915 at the Panama Pacific International Exposition. 
In her speech, she said, our schools uproot the creative ideals of childhood and plant in their place worthless ideals of ownership. The fine soul of a child is of far greater importance than high marks, yet the system causes the pupil to prize high grades above knowledge. And he goes from school into his life work, believing always that the score is more important than the game. Possession more praiseworthy than achievements. The famous Dr. Maria Montessori was also honored at this event, and she said of Annie, I have been called a pioneer, but there is your pioneer. Which I'm like, damn. For three years after the split between John and Annie, the women made a living by telling the story of Helen's life through lectures and traveling a lot, which made Anne feel absolutely exhausted. Her health was never great. She had had a stroke years before, and it was really, really getting to her. So she took a little vacation with her friend Polly to Puerto Rico for a little bit, and it wasn't until Helen wrote saying, hey, the U.S. declared war on Germany, you should get your butts home, that they decided to make their way back. After that, Helen and Annie wanted a new start, so they sold their home and bought another home in New York. In 1918, the women went to Los Angeles to make a movie based on Helen's life. And when in L.A., Annie met none other than Charlie Chaplin. And apparently, the two became like fast friends. They got along immediately. Interesting. Is there a new documentary about Charlie Chaplin? Because he was a very interesting person, a yeah. polarizing figure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because he married like a 13 year old or something. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And had to like go to Austria. Ugh. Yeah. I know. Listen, not trying to put, not trying to put a I damper mean, on this story. It's I just, good to know. <laughs> yeah. But he was like one of the biggest stars at the course, time. And yeah. he was like besties with Annie. Um, Helen later wrote, they both struggled for education and social equality. Both were shy and unspoiled by the victories over fate. With their success in the lecture circuit, but lack of success commercially with the movie they went to L.A. to make, the women went back to New York and turned to vaudeville in 1920, which I don't remember mentioning in Helen Keller's story. I don't remember that either. And also, Annie, honey, (laughs) if you're already tired... Don't do vaudeville. I feel like you're really going to exhaust yourself. Have you ever done a tour before? It's like eight shows a week in vaudeville or if not 12 you gotta i at this point i'm like i think no one would fault you if you just went home and relaxed but like helen wanted to do all this stuff and she was young and i think annie was like who else is gonna do it if i don't no (sighs) one else can manually sign everything to helen she had to go with her to everything it was like she kind of had to but their act was super funny annie would ask questions and helen would give like super funny witty responses so question do you close your eyes when you sleep? I guess I do. I never stayed awake to see. Oh, <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. There's there's another one. Do you think America has been true to her ideals? Answer. I'm afraid to answer that. The Ku Klux Klan might give me a ducking. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the whole crowd is just like, ha, 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 <laughs> the shows are really popular and Helly really loved the excitement of all of it. But like we were saying, Anne didn't at all. Her health was failing even more and she didn't have any energy. So they agreed to stop performing. Between 1927 and 1930, Annie's vision continued to worsen. As a result, she taught their friend Polly how to manually sign so she could take over reading and the daily workload for Helen. Her right eye was removed yep, in 1929. Go. By 1930, she had one-tenth normal vision, so she was almost completely blind. In any way, she and the other two women took a trip to Scotland 
England, and Ireland. Her experience in Ireland was very emotional. She felt a strong connection to her Irish heritage and its history and politics. She once wrote, only a love of Irish politics has kept me interested in world affairs. You know, I really think that speaks to what happens when you have your culture and your identity kind of like ripped ripped away from you. Because I feel something very similarly with like a lot of African-Americans, you know, there's like that very strong pull and strong tie to Africa that oftentimes I feel like Native Africans kind of resent in African-Americans that they feel that way. But I think it comes from having that identity it's the not knowing. Right, right. It's and that need for like the discovery of who you are. Right. You know you're Irish, right? And so you cling to that thing and you cling to being like Irish Catholic and like that's the thing you cling to because right. you don't you didn't get to have the rest of whatever that means. You didn't get to have the family and, and everything else that yeah, goes along and with that. She really didn't have the family. She had right. nobody to teach her anything about who she was. And she was also horrified by the extreme poverty that she was seeing. She felt very guilty to be kind of like riding around in these nicer cars and seeing these people, you know, without proper food and clothing and things like that. It was really an eye opener for her. And she felt really guilty during that visit. This I thought was pretty funny. In October 1930, Temple University sought to honor Helen and Annie with a degree. Annie's stubbornness initially made her refuse the offer, but it was literally forced upon her. They're like, we're going to give you this fucking honorary degree, whether you like it or not. I love people like this. Like, they're just <laughs> like, why? Like, you know, but I respect it at the same time. I'm it's like, like Bob Dylan that went in hiding when he won the Peace Prize. Like, Do you remember what? that? No, but that he sounds... won the Nobel Prize and no one could find him. It sounds very Bob Dylan. It's so that. Bob Dylan. Yeah. I love him so much. By 1936, her health was unfortunately in irreversible decline. She passed away on October 20th, 1936. She dictated the following message to her friend Polly shortly before she passed. Goodbye, John Macy. I'll soon be with you. Goodbye. I loved you. I wanted to be loved. I was lonesome. Then Helen came into my life. I wanted her to love me and I loved her. Then later, Polly came, and we were always so happy together. My Polly, my Helen. Dear children, may we all meet together in harmony. My Jimmy, I'll lay these flowers by your face. Don't take him away from me. I loved him, so he's all I've got. Thank God I gave my life that Helen might live. God help her to live without me when I go. So that's a bit more discombobulated. She's really not in her right mind. So it does sound a bit rambly and weird. But I love that like the last thing she really wants to get down on paper is the fact that she loved John Macy. She loved her friends, Helen and Polly, and she wanted to be with her little brother again. Well, I I think I can forgive a lack of eloquence on your deathbed, right? Like, how do you say goodbye? I would hope so. (laughs) You know? To the people who you loved. Yeah. And like she wanted, Polly would go on to care for Helen for the rest of her life. And she still loved her ex-husband. I know. She did. She did. My heart. What happened? I don't know. Annie was cremated and her ashes were spread at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. She was the first woman to receive this honor. Helen would join her when she passed much later. In the fall of 2003, Anne was indicted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York. And that's the last update of achievements we got. But my God, does she have so many more? It would be a list of achievements if I listed them at the end. An honorary degree. She got an honorary degree from like Harvard and multiple other like. Yeah. 
you True know, pioneer. Ivy League schools, but like way after her death. So a lot of people would, you know, grant them, yeah. get them for her, which it sounds like she wouldn't have showed up if they invited her when she was alive. So maybe it worked out better that way. Yeah. yeah. Wow. What an amazing example of like true friendship and love. I know. Like, you know, true sister solidarity yeah, right there. Yeah. And I feel like it's such a worthwhile conversation to have that love is not always romantic love uh-huh. and that sometimes love in friendship is just as life altering and just as important. Yeah. And, and I sometimes think, more important. I think the other important message is also that you choose your family. Your family yes. is that that you make, not that you're born into. And I think that that's a really important thing that both Annie and Helen learned from each other. Yeah. Yeah. So <sighs> sweet. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that story. You're welcome. Now we've covered Helen and Annie. Yeah. So we got we got the dynamic duo. We got the duo. (laughs) We're going to take one more break and then we'll come back and I'll tell you who I'm doing this week. Ooh, cliffhanger. And we're back. Okay, I'm really excited. This person is a personal hero of mine I think I can say that someone I've always admired when I was a young girl I wanted to be like her like I think it says a lot about me whenever I look back on the people who like I wanted to grow up to be I always wanted to grow up to be these like glamorous women these like kind of I don't care what anybody thinks of me I'm going to do what I want. Glamorous ladies. That can was do my like a, ideal. Not quite 20 questions, but can I ask you a couple questions? To sure. Try to guess who it is. Sure. I feel like I've known you long enough that I should be able to get this answer and I'm racking my brain already and I can't think of it. You know, it. it's not someone I bring up ever, but like, is this person an activist of sorts? Yes, but that's not pri- primarily what they're known Are for. Are they in Hollywood? Yes. You said glamour. Are they... Hollywood and New York. Okay. Are they like more recent or is this like way, way back when? Like is, is this when we were alive it happened or this happened before? before we were alive. I have no idea. Okay. I, <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe that would help and it really didn't. <laughs> I am going to talk today about Eartha Kitt. Oh my God. Why didn't I think of that? You know, I love love Eartha Kitt I love Eartha Kitt too and I feel like she is such an icon but it's not someone her voice iconic iconic she plays Yzma I know in Emperor's New Groove and for those of you who do not know that's not just my favorite Disney movie that's like probably one of my favorite movies of all time I can recite that shit me too I watched that movie Obsessively, First, when I was, I'll turn him into a flea. Uh-huh, I'll turn this little, little flea. flea, and then I'll put that flea in a box. box, and I'll put that box into another box, and I'll mail that box to myself. Okay, I'm not gonna do the whole thing. Honestly, oh, but her in holes, I couldn't watch that part where she like leans into the camera and she's like telling the curse part to Stanley. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that part yes. of the movie? Because it like lives in my brain forever. That scared the shit out of me because she like leans right into the camera and she's breaking the fourth wall, and I'm like, ah, she's looking at me. She is such an incredible performer she's also santa baby oh my santa god baby. I, I mean she's an icon like an there is icon. no other way to say it and i 
and I've loved her forever. She was one of those women. I always wanted to be that type. Like I would watch her, you know, old clips of her where she's wearing as Catwoman. She's like silky almost. Yeah, and like the way slinky. she walks. She's yeah, very, slinky is the word I'm mm-hmm. looking for. Yeah, and we're I, both like moving our shoulders a lot right now and trying to be sexy. I don't. I know think how it's I wanted to me. be this like kind of villainous femme fatale. I love that type person when I was a kid. I, I looked up to people like that. Like I thought that. Oh my gosh, if I could just be like Eartha Kit, I could have the world in my hands. Like yeah. that's what I thought whenever I, I would I would see someone like her. I mean, she was a badass catwoman. Yeah. And I think that that role was probably like a watershed moment for a lot of other girls too. Of that yeah. like, wait, I want to be like that. Yes. You know? Yes. And I wrote that in my notes when we get to that part, but like that seeing her as Catwoman, to me, it was huge like I, as a kid whenever I, I saw old clips of her as Catwoman I was like there is this black woman playing this to me she was so much cooler than yeah. like Batwoman or Supergirl or like anyone else because way cooler she was this almost anti-hero like kind of a villain but like not quite but still, she was like good yeah still has a little bit of a, a moral compass but does what she wants well you she's know. like the best in the cartoons and stuff too like yeah. she's so she's silly and playful yet she's sexy and badass and can kick your ass yeah and to me you know I went as Eartha Kit back I mean, Eartha Kitt, Catwoman, whenever I was like 19, like I went as that Catwoman specifically. And so to me, Catwoman was always a black woman. Like I I was just like, after that, there was Halle Berry, terrible movie. But I was going to say, I think for me, when I would originally think of Catwoman, although I love Eartha Kitt, I think the first one that always comes to my mind is Halle Berry, just from growing up in that era, you know? Yeah, but so for me, that's what it was. So even though she did a great job, I was disappointed when they cast Anne Hathaway in the Nolan Batman yeah. movies because to me, I was just like, that's ours. It's our thing. But then they did Zoe Kravitz yep. in the new one. We're back, baby. Oh my back. God, have I had the biggest crush on Zoe Kravitz for so long. You can be Who as doesn't? straight as an uncooked spaghetti noodle yeah. and I'm sorry, you are a little gay for Zoe Kravitz. 100%. Whew. That woman... Wow. Mm. Hot. Oh, okay. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm getting distracted. So let's get back. Let's jump in. Let's talk about Eartha Kit. Okay. Eartha Kit, a woman who Orson Welles once referred to as the most exciting woman in the world. Wow. Which exciting? Most exciting woman in the world. I feel like I would be described as the most boring person in the world. <laughs> Never. She loved to go to bed by 10 p.m. Honestly. and wake up at a reasonable hour and have a Three cups of coffee before she leaves her house in the morning. When you think about what that means for a black woman in the early 1950s to have one of the most prominent directors of really all time. Give you such a very, very positive review that isn't coded language. You know what I mean? I feel like during that time when black artists were given praise, it was very like coded praise, you know? And I think so much of her success, and again, we'll get into it but like so much of her success I think has to do with just who she is she has this quality about her Her that's so like unapologetic and charismatic you know that I don't think you can help but love her or just at least be fascinated by her or at least want to cast her in everything right (laughs) okay 
So I feel like most people know Eartha as a singer and an actor. Like we said, she originated the Christmas song Santa Baby, uh, Catwoman. She was Yzma on Emperor's New Groove. But she was also a civil rights advocate who at one time was deemed to be a threat to national security by the CIA. Oh, wait, I remember. I think I read that in like a BuzzFeed listicle a long Mm -hmm. time ago where it's like facts you never knew about Hollywood celebrities or something. Yes, yes. So Eartha Kitt was born Eartha May Keith on January 17th, 1927. Sag? Capricorn. Capricorn. Which, of course, she's a Capricorn. I'm like, that makes so much sense. I don't know Capricorns or Virgos very well, I feel like. I love them Capricorns. Who's a Capricorn that we know? Christina. Okay, Is a Capricorn. Imagining it now. They're very good at getting stuff done. Great. And making money. Great. They're good at those things. Damn it. I want to be both of those things. (laughs) Um, So... She was born on a cotton plantation in South Carolina. Her mother, Annie May, was black and Cherokee, and her father was unknown, though she would later go on to say that she believed her father was the white son of a plantation owner and uh, that she was the product of rape. So we don't know this uh, like 100% she never knew throughout her entire life. But I could see where she got the idea that at least she probably had a bit of whiteness in her because she was like, she wasn't probably as, as darker skinned as her mother was. I can see where she was not. Yeah. She was probably around my coloring. Like we're we're similar in skin tone where she could maybe put two and two together, you know, hear stories that her mother told things like that. She was bullied often because everyone in her family and everyone she interacted with in the South was dark skinned and she was light skinned. So I think that she just assumed even if her mom never came out and said who her father was, uh, that her father was white. And then because there was so much weird secrecy, uh, and, her mom didn't really talk to her at all about yeah. it. I think that she just kind of went through her life thinking that she was the product of a sexual assault. I don't know that she ever really went into detail about how she came to that specific conclusion. I would imagine that though her mother wasn't forthcoming about who her father was, maybe was forthcoming about en- enough other things or maybe right. she could draw some conclusions. That's kind of what I'm thinking too. Because and- it is specific to say the son and instead of, you know, the head of the house or things like that. So I'm wondering if there might have been clues as to the behavior of the son and how they were treated and things like that that maybe led her to believe those things. Right. I mean, I'll talk about it a little bit later about the murkiness. Uh Um, But she did try to find things out later on in her life. And... But there probably wasn't much of a paper trail. She hit so many roadblocks and she didn't know. So I guess we'll talk about it now. She didn't know her actual birthday, which is really, which was very common for black Americans. Well, was it still at that time? I don't know. know. This is the 1920s. Okay. So that is pretty late. Never mind. Yeah. I feel like you would, but no one ever shared her birth certificate. And then I think she kind of drew conclusions about her parentage partially because she hit roadblocks every step of the way, even trying to get a hold of her birth certificate. Yeah. And so she was 71 before she knew her actual birthday uh, when she was able to get a hold of her birth certificate. And when she got it, they had blacked out (gasps) her father's name on the birth certificate. Fuck that noise. Right. So it's really sad, you know, to picture 71 year old Eartha Kitt, her daughter describes the moment she's worked all this time to even be able to get a hold of her birth certificate. She gets it. She still doesn't know who her father is and 
she said that her mother just cried because oh. it was just like she how, wanted to know how heartbreaking yeah, is that it's heartbreaking everyone deserves to know where they come from yeah yeah huh. so when eartha was five her mother began a relationship with a dark-skinned black man who refused to accept eartha because she was of a lighter complexion so because of this her mother gave her up for adoption what the fuck mm-hmm. what are up with these fucking parents it's, her childhood is so sad why are parents giving up their children like this it's it's very sad don't have kids if you don't want them so her her adoptive family, some sources say that this was another family member or an aunt, um, raised her in abusive conditions, forcing her to pick cotton to earn her keep in the house. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she said that her adoptive siblings would regularly submit her to beatings because she was biracial. When Eartha was seven. Baby girl. Yes. So when Eartha was seven, she was brought to her mother's bedside and witnessed her mother die. Uh, When she was there, she said that they were performing rituals in the room that led her to believe that uh, something untoward had gone on with her mother and to her death believed that her mother had been poisoned. And that's how she died. So the rituals would be because she was dying of poisoning? Yes. So... From the article that I read, which was an interview with Eartha Kitt's daughter. Right. She said that Eartha Kitt was brought to her mom and that they were performing. She said, I don't want to, you know, generalize. Right, Right. But she said that they were voodoo rituals that they would only perform if the death was not natural. Okay. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. So they want to make sure she, you know, passed on. It wasn't. I I guess. I understand that. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So the next year at the age of eight, she was sent to live with another relative, a aunt named Mamie Kitt. Though Mamie was said to be Eartha's aunt, there is some speculation that she might be her biological mother. I saw that coming. Yes. There's so much murkiness about. Freaking. Soap opera right here. Yes. Her childhood and family roots, there's so much murkiness surrounding it that like you just don't know. I can't even imagine what growing up like this must have been like. Like Unbelievably confusing. Very, very. So anyway, at the age of eight, she moves in with Aunt Mamie, who may have been her mom, in this cramped apartment in Harlem. And this too was not the ideal home situation, as she would later say that Mamie took her in more out of Christian duty than affection. Yeah. But it but was, was she at least like not abused? Right. It was fed? the most stable home life she'd yeah. ever had up until this point. So she attended a performing arts high school and worked at a sewing machine factory. And at the age of 16, she landed an audition at the pioneering African-American dance company of of Catherine Dunham and got in. I wonder what led her to going to a performing arts school and like, I don't know, there's something about people that come from backgrounds where it doesn't seem like it's facilitating that future. It's like, what gave you that idea to be like, I don't want to go to a regular high school. I want to go to a performing arts high school. This is my thing. I don't know. Uh, And there was really no details on it. I thought the same thing. Yeah. Usually... Like whenever I talked about Raven Wilkinson, it was just like this was an interest of hers. She sought out to go to a performing art school. Right. Which it sounds like to go to one, you have to seek it out. Like I doubt it dropped into her lap. I mean, unless that was just the the closest. Maybe it was the closest high school to where they were living in Harlem. Maybe. Because because I I wonder if there was 
any sort of like, I don't know. It just, it sounds like her childhood was so difficult that I wonder if maybe there was some singers or actresses or something that she, you know, really loved that inspired her to do that. It just seems like an interesting jump. Yeah. Not like it's a bad thing, but just like I'm wondering what got her from point A to point B there. I don't know because really the eight years between when she moves to Harlem and when she joins the um, dance company, the dance company, there's really like not a lot of information about her life at that point. What we do know is that it was kind of a a new world for Eartha because she grew up, she talks a lot about growing up light-skinned or biracial in the deep South at the time and how difficult that was for her. And now she's in Harlem. Right, which is far more culturally diverse. And I was just going to say, artsy as fuck as well. Exactly. So living in Harlem, there I think that might be the answer right there. Living exactly. in Harlem, you're just kind of experiencing all of that stuff. Answer my own damn question. And she's living in Harlem kind of during the, the Harlem Renaissance, Renaissance right? Okay, I can Where, remember so, what era that was. Yeah, I think I think around this time cuz she was born in the 20s, she's 8 years old, so this would have been like early 1930s. Yeah. So when she moves to Harlem. So I think definitely in the mix of jazz and there's a lot happening in this area at that time so I wonder if she was just inspired by that I wonder if proximity had something to do with it totally as well I I don't know that her aunt although she gave her you know a roof over her head and food to eat I don't know that she would have really facilitated this dream right yeah for her to pursue because that would that would lead to some affection and things like that which she didn't seem to get from her no I mean we also do know that during this time she has spoken about how she was still not happy at home and would oftentimes just not go home and stay like sleep in subway like sleep in the subway and stuff like that whenever she was a teenager so I and sadly this is her most stable childhood home so shitty yeah yeah so she gets into this dance company and she would remain with the company for five years touring in the united states mexico south america and europe wow when the company returned to the united states eartha chose to stay in paris where she was a captivating nightclub performer they loved her of course they loved her in paris yeah she has that energy like if you watch any footage of her she has this like real power in her sexuality and just like the way she moves the way she talks the way she sings is so unique yeah and paris was very much like i almost think in a way similar to harlem and it's kind of like wild and out there-ness of that time of like you know, I think this was after like the Moulin Rouge and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, maybe still kind of in that era, but it was kind of there was this alluring quality in like Paris, France of this like kind of dark underbelly world yeah, this as well bo- of this like bohemian kind of subculture. Yeah, deep certainly sexuality, and, and they embrace that more than other places. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's part of the reason that Josephine Baker also went to Paris. I mean. Yeah. That and all the racism in the United States. Uh, that was going to be my next point. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. it's probably a little better. <laughs> yes. So while in Paris, she encountered Orson Welles, who was so taken with her performance that he courted her and then cast her as Helen of Troy in Dr. Faustus. He courted her? So, yes. And so she describes like I, he pursued her. But not in a romantic way. Well, maybe a little. Maybe she, he flirted to get what he wanted a little bit. I think they they had a platonic 
flirtatious Flirty, relationship. Yeah. Okay, that so makes sense. She said they like to have like a little flirty fun with each other. Yeah, she wrote an autobiography called Confessions of a Sex Kitten. And in it, she says that their relationship was an affair, but was never sexual. She said, quote, the most exciting men in my life have been the men who have never taken me to bed. And I love that. Yes. She and she loved Orson Welles and she thought that he was very interesting and exciting. But their relationship was platonic. a yes, it was like a platonic affair love yeah. affair you know and a working relationship like that's what they had which I love I think that we have to move away from this binary of what relationships look like like relationships can look like all different kinds of things and they're all great yeah and they're all acceptable so by the time Eartha returned from Europe she spoke four languages Whew. English French German and Dutch and sang in 11 so she was such a quick learner again another person who had really not a ton of education and a very unstable home life and childhood and was able just very smart like able to teach herself things and there's something interesting about I feel like a lot of singers in particular that are like genius singers like Judy Garland could hear a song once and Uh play it and sing it back perfect pitch uh, yeah and I think there's something about like the memory of like some of these singers where you're like oh they were like born to do this where it was probably so natural for her to sing in these other languages where for others it would be much more difficult yeah oh definitely Once back in the States, Eartha became an immediate star, appearing in the Broadway review New Faces of 1952 and releasing her first album, which had Santa Baby on its track list. I love it. Eartha's appearance and sound had an unapologetically sexy energy to it. Like you hear it. It's part of what makes Santa Baby, Santa Baby, right? Like Santa Baby. Yeah, which is not my favorite genre of song that like sexy baby kind of like very Marilyn Monroe Mm -hmm. yeah yes so she quickly became in the words of the New York Times quote known for her sultry voice her persona as a gold digger who renders men into helpless little boys with her sexual power (laughs) (laughs) some women may have shied away from this persona at the time when women especially black women were not meant to be seen as independently sexual beings I also feel like gold digger is a little bit mm. it feels it feels icky but at the same time Eartha owned it she was just like totally whatever you know and it was kind of like it's the same time that Marilyn Monroe was also coming up at the, at this time yeah and Marilyn Monroe was in a movie how to marry a millionaire like yeah. there was just this thing that was just like okay part of owning our sexuality means that yes we know what we want and we want a man that can afford us and, <laughs> and you know for so long the patriarchy has played these things against us and we're yeah. gonna say like look we're, we're gonna, gonna get use money whatever on terms whatever yeah. we can use to get ourselves ahead and that's our prerogative yeah if you fall for it, that's on you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I really think that she kind of felt that way. Um, she loved this persona and leaned into the bad girl sex kitten thing, even releasing a track literally called I Want to Be Evil. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> At a time when it was illegal for an African-American to have sex with a white person in 28 out of 50 states, Eartha had men and women of all colors eating out of her hand. Like Josephine Baker before her, she gave black women permission to seek sexual liberation and there was power in that. Yeah. She told people like, there's power in your sexuality. Yeah. Go ahead and use it. It's almost like 
men wanted to be with her and women wanted to be her. Yeah. And also maybe be with her. (laughs) I mean, because let's be real. (laughs) It totally didn't go unnoticed either. Like it, it was a big deal for the black community in particular. And Diana Ross would later say that as a member of the Supremes, she largely based her look and her sound on Eartha Kitt. Like that was her inspiration. That That kind of like high pitched whispery almost. Yeah. Vocals. Throughout the rest of the 1950s and early 1960s, she recorded, worked in film, television, and nightclubs, and returned to the stage both on Broadway and off. In the late 1960s, Batman featured Kit as Catwoman after Julie Newmar had left the show in 1967. Mm -hmm. So they needed to replace Catwoman, and they called Eartha Kit, which is a huge deal. I know we already talked about it, but like that's a huge deal. And there were actually, there've been a lot of, there's been a lot of research done about the representation of black people in the media, especially during that time. And to have her in this prime time slot acting next to all of these white actors in a very like sexual kind of sexy role was a very, scandalous there's probably a lot of unhappy viewers <laughs> i'm certain that there were yeah. in, in the south and i'm so, not watching this show anymore yeah the fact that she was able to do this was huge yeah you know so at this point in Eartha's career things are going pretty swimmingly she's arguably at the height of her fame yeah like whenever all this stuff with with batman is happening Eartha had been involved in activism for basically all of her career, volunteering in numerous social causes in the 50s and 60s. In 1966, she established the Kittsville Youth Foundation, a chartered and nonprofit organization for underprivileged youth youths in the Watts area of Los Angeles. But it was her involvement with a group of youths in Washington, D.C., who called themselves Rebels with a Cause, that got Eartha invited to the First Lady, Lady Bird Johnson's Women Doers Luncheon on January 18th, 1968, for a discussion on what women could do to eradicate crime on the streets. Mm. So this was really, Eartha Kitt was involved in a lot of charities and stuff like that, but this was her focus, was helping young people, specifically young people in poverty, young people living on the streets. Like this was her How do we keep focus. them safer? Right. How do we keep them safer? How do we help them? How do we feed them? How do we find them homes and educations? And like this was her bread and butter, right? How do we give these kids a better life than I had to deal with? Yeah. 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 So because of that, you know, and because she was so popular and so um, famous at the time, Lady Bird Johnson was like, why don't you come to this luncheon? And she really didn't want to go like she was like this sounds boring (laughs) well it's like what like it's just i'm gonna show my face for some luncheon like what's that gonna do right she just felt like it was very symbolic and it was all just talk 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 and blah 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 and boring and like she's just like i didn't really want to go um but she decided to go anyway and this luncheon would change the course of her life and her career and she almost didn't go right For some background, at this point, the Vietnam War had been going on for 13 years and was currently under its third president, the husband of Lady Bird, Lyndon B. Johnson. Towards the end of the luncheon, Lady Bird asked the room of 50 women, only seven of which were black, for their comments. In her autobiography, Confessions of a Sex Kitten, Kit describes 
becoming increasingly frustrated as this luncheon continued. It was going exactly the way she thought it would go. Mm -hmm. It was just like a bunch of mostly white ladies congratulating themselves and patting themselves on the back. Right. She says that she watched white woman after white woman give speeches about the beautification of America, flower pots on the windowsills of poverty. Oh my God. And she would raise her hand, like she raised her hand several times to speak because she's yeah. like, I actually have something to say on this topic. And she was never called on until the very end. And by the time she was called on, she was pissed. pissed. <laughs> yes. So when she was finally called on, she told the first lady exactly what she thought that juvenile crime was in part a pushback against being drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. Uh -huh. So her remarks opened, I have lived in the gutters. That's why I know what I'm talking about. And she went on to say, boys I know across the nation feel it doesn't pay to be a good guy. They figure with a record they don't have to go off to Vietnam. You send the best of this country off to be shot and maimed. They rebel in the street. They will take pot and they will get high. They don't want to go to school because they're going to be snatched off from their mothers to be shot in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. She continued, Mrs. Johnson, you are a mother too, although you have had daughters and not sons. I am a mother and I know the feeling of having a baby come out of my guts. I have a baby and then you send him off to war. No wonder the kids rebel and take pot. And Mrs. Johnson, in case you don't understand the lingo, that's marijuana. Oh my God. In front of everybody. Mike dropped. Yes. In case you don't know the lingo, Mrs. Johnson, mm -hmm. That's marijuana. Right. I mean, bitch. <laughs> like she's saying real shit. She has all these real. people around her kind of patting the Johnsons on the back for being like, oh, we're going to do we're basically just going to like put sprinkle potpourri on shit. Right. Yeah. Like that's how we're going to fix this problem. And she's like, no, you're not getting to the heart of it. Like we this need to war, end this fucking war. Like, yeah. why would anybody they don't feel like they have a future? Like, why would they think that? they have anything they need to look forward to or live for. And it was honestly a really good point to say that it might have been safer in a jail or a prison than being sent to Vietnam. Exactly, yeah. So newspapers would later report that Mrs. Johnson burst into tears at this. <laughs> though, I hope she did. Though there's no real proof that this actually, that she, she actually She probably didn't, but like, I want to imagine that it did. But it was reported that way. And needless to say, though, Lady Bird was stunned. Women in the room ran to the microphone to defend the Johnsons and express their outrage at Eartha's comments. The event would make the front page of the New York Times with the headline, Eartha Kitt denounces war policy to Mrs. Johnson. When leaving the White House that day, Eartha knew that things had changed immediately. Yeah. The, yeah. White, the White House had sent a car to pick her up to take her to the luncheon, and she was waiting and waiting, and they never sent a car to pick her up to take her home. So she well, actually... Well, would they rather her stay? Well, they... <laughs> she <laughs> had to call a cab. Raise more hell? <laughs> yeah. So she, she called a cab, and in the cab, she heard the incident being discussed on the radio. Like, it was Such that a movie. Fast. Yeah. <laughs> And the most prominent narrative was that not the point that the points that Eartha had made. Of course not. It was that this mean black lady made Mrs. Johnson cry. And she was portrayed as an antagonist and an attacker of the first lady, even being described as shrill by one newspaper source. Oh, such a great descriptor for women. We right. love it. We love it. Hey, 1970. 1968? What year is this? Yeah, 1968. <laughs> the retaliation for her honest critique of the war was swift 
and strong. And within hours, her career in the U.S. was ruined for, for the next decade. Oh, my God. Yes. Lyndon B. Johnson had her blacklisted for her comments, and she was basically unhirable Holy at that point. Holy shit. Yeah. Within days of the incident, the president had the CIA compile a dossier on Eartha that read like a secondhand gossip rag. Are you serious? Yes. And it's ridiculous. You have nothing better to do, LBJ? Seriously? <laughs> it is so ridiculous. Like, the dossier said that Eartha was a woman of loose morals, that she had a nasty disposition, a vile tongue, and at one point referred to her as a sadistic nymphomaniac. Yeah. My mouth is just in the yeah. shape of an O. But I, I mean- do love that years later, <laughs> Eartha Kitt would say in an interview... What has that got to do with the CIA, even if I was? Yeah, she's exactly. Like, she's like, I'm not. But even if I was. What if is- I was a, lim- a nymphomaniac. Wow, I can't speak. If I was a nymphomaniac, like, what does the Who CIA cares? care if I yeah. like sleeping with people? It has nothing to do with anything. Nightclubs and other venues asked her not to return to her engagements. And she lost her contract with WME and was unable to find more work. Eventually, she was forced to leave the country and perform exclusively in Europe until a decade later when she returned to the States to headline the Broadway musical Timbuktu in 1978. Jesus Christ. Ten years she had to spend in Europe. Still, some outside of the White House recognized her action as extremely brave. At an anti-war protest following the luncheon, one woman carried a sign that read, Eartha Kitt speaks for the women of America. Mm-hmm. Kitt wasn't completely certain why all this work had dried up. I mean, like she was like, yes, like that was a thing that happened, but this is wild. That, yeah, like, that one would comment. lead to another, yeah. you know, like one thing would why lead to another. Why does a president care so much to ruin my career? Right, because I hurt his wife's feelings. Yeah. Uh, so she wasn't completely certain if this was the reason or not. She wouldn't learn the reason until years later in 1974 when she got a call from a New York Times reporter that the dossier had contained specific instructions to defame her in the United States. He told her, Lyndon has decided you shouldn't be seen anywhere and that's why you're having a hard time getting work. Just can you... Imagine. What a dick. Why does the president care so much? Who are you, Trump? Well, he had files on everyone. I mean, this is the same time when, like, they had files on Martin Luther King. It's what got yeah. Martin Luther King killed, yeah. was, like, speaking out against the Vietnam War. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's so, like, when I think about it, it's like, you need to stop casting Eartha in your films. Like, it's just such a petty thing when you yeah. really think about it, you yeah. know? Stupid. When asked by the New York Times if they had her permission to publish portions of the report, she granted it, saying, I have nothing to be afraid of and I have nothing to hide. Yeah. She's like, go ahead. They're calling me, you know, a sadistic nymphomaniac. Go ahead. Yep. Finally, she was able to return to the United States in 1978 and experienced a major comeback in her career, starring in films and receiving Tony and Grammy nominations. She would even be invited back to the White House by President Jimmy Carter years later. Which makes sense. Yes. (laughs) I'll make it right. Good old Jimmy. But who knows? Like, it's so sad because it's like, who knows the heights that her career could have risen to? If she didn't have to take a 10-year break in another country. At the peak of it. You know, like they derailed her career yeah. in a way that she couldn't ever fully recover from. Like she went on to she do always incredible worked, things. But like her star may have been so much greater if yeah. she didn't have to take 10 years, which it isn't to say that working in Europe is lesser than she was just stalling her fame in her home country, you know? Right. I mean, and 
Yeah. And you have to pivot at a yeah. time whenever you are in an upward trajectory. And like now you have to like figure something else out. Like, yeah. it's so unfair. Yeah. In 2000, Eartha endeared herself to a whole new audience when she lent her distinctive voice to Yzma in The Emperor's New Groove and went on to take a number of voiceover roles after that. Because her voice is so amazing. amazing. It's wonderful. Kit later became a vocal advocate for LGBT rights and publicly supported same-sex marriage, which she can which she considered a civil right. She had been quoted as saying, quote, I support gay marriage because we're asking for the same thing. If I have a partner and something happens to me, I want that partner to enjoy the benefits of what we have reaped together. It's a civil rights thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. In a 1992 interview with Dr. Anthony Clare, she spoke about her gay following because, of course, she's huge, you know, in the drag scene. Yeah. Um, And she said... We're all rejected people. We know what it is to be refused. We know what it is to be oppressed, depressed, and then accused. And I am very much cognizant of that feeling. Nothing in the world is more painful than rejection. I am a rejected, oppressed person. And so I understand them as best as I can, even though I'm a heterosexual. And that's kind of like when I covered Judy as a like gay icon, it yeah. was kind of the same thing where it's like there's this connection of heartbreak and oppression with many different types of people. Like you can feel empathy even though you don't have that exact same experience right. because you've still felt that way. Yeah, I'm an outcast because of XYZ. XYZ. And I can relate to you right. because of that. And we can't share exact same experiences, but we can relate on that level. And, and I can, can fight for you because I understand, yeah. even though I'm not in your shoes. Yeah. Yeah. And she also recognized that even with all of this shit that she had to endure, which is more than any one person should ever have to endure. Right. Uh, she also understood that her platform and, you know, the amount of money she'd made and all these other things did provide her a certain amount of privilege right. to be able to speak on this, on this stuff. So, Certainly. Yeah. Eartha died of colon cancer on Christmas Day, 2008, three weeks short of her 82nd birthday. Not a good Christmas. No, no. I can't imagine my mother dying oh. on Christmas. And it's like, I got to say, like, the, especially the first few years after losing someone, that anniversary day yeah. is really hard. Hits you hard. And having that be Christmas would be really painful. Yeah, it would be. Um, and she passed away at her home in Connecticut. I think the thing that endures about Eartha Kitt is that she was so uncompromising. She spoke her mind and was always really, truly, authentically herself. And I think for so many people, myself included, we fear being ourselves. Like we fear that it can be seen as a sign of weakness. Right. You know, and she leaned into it fully. The like. Even yeah. the things she was judged about, she was just like, well, it's well, who I am and it can be my strength. And that's what I love because I don't know if I've ever said this on the show, but like I used to hate the fact that I was so talkative and didn't have a filter and an open book that I would like literally pray to God at night that he would like teach me to be shy and like. I don't like, please like, let me talk less tomorrow. Like, let me not make a fool of myself. And I think it's easy to like, like she seems very loud and outspoken and unfiltered as well. And for me, if I come out of an awkward situation because of something I've said, I blame myself. Oh, and yeah. Instead, she had the conviction to be like, no, that's who I am. And like, that's something that I still really strive for all the time where I'll be like, oh, God, like. Why did I say that? Why oh, did I make too. that situation uncomfortable? Why did I do that? Where I think she was just kind of like, no, I was in the right and that's fine. Even if I'm, 
you know, too eccentric or whatever for you, like that's who I am and deal with it. Right. I think for me, especially since starting being in the podcast world, I've really had to come to terms with the idea that not everyone is going to like you. And that is okay. Like you're going to get feedback from people who just don't vibe with you and don't like you. And they might give you one star on Apple podcasts or whatever, just as a, for instance, (laughs) Uh, you know, and you just have to be okay with like, okay, that doesn't mean anything's wrong with me. I'm just not that person's cup of tea. I'm not their cup of tea. And exactly. that's fine. And that is still a really hard thing for me to digest because the more you don't like me, the more I want you to like 100%, me. Oh, hundred percent. Like a hundred percent. And those like that negative criticism lives in your head so much more than the positive criticism. Yeah. I and, mean, and not it, criticism, but the positive feedback. Right. And it like creates pause. I know when I'm around people that make me feel uncomfortable or weird and things like that it makes me want to retreat into myself yeah and I I so admire the people like I don't know how to retreat more but I admire the people who like just don't care yeah I mean and Eartha was very much that way and she maintained that like even as she got older which we all know what society wants to do to older women yeah they want to turn you into these like sexless beings and send you off to Siberia and never have to look at you. Yeah. And she never did that. Like no. there was an interview, there is an interview that you can find online where she's 62 years old and she's sitting across from an interviewer and she extends her leg. She puts her like leg on his lap in front of like a live audience and she asks him how wicked do you think I am at 62 like she remained this very like she just remained herself like that's just who she was you know love it and one clip that I see go viral of Eartha Kitt every few years is from the 1982 documentary all by myself it is just the best it's the best so when asked if she'd ever compromise for a man she smiles she throws her head back and it's this cackle it's yeah this that cackle is what's viral laugh yes <laughs> she starts laughing in this kind of like maniacal kind of way and she says compromising for what reason to compromise for what to compromise what is compromise stupid a man comes into my life and I have to compromise you must think about that one again a relationship is a relationship that has to be earned when you fall in love what is there to compromise about I fall in love with myself and I want someone to share it with me I want someone to share me with me oh and you're just like that is We all need to have that when it goes into every friendship, romantic relationship, everything like that person is lucky to have you. And I think we all forget. And that's always what I say. I'm like, look, you know, I've lost friends even kind of recently. And it's kind of like, that's where I'm at now. I will I will try and patch things up with you. I will try and or I will apologize for anything that I've done that's ever made you feel bad right. I, I that's never my intention but at the end of the day I won't beg anyone to be in my life because nope. I know my worth and I know that you're lucky to have me in yeah. your life like and we are lucky to have you in our lives and we're lucky Keegan. to have you in <sighs> our lives and that's how you should look at it yeah. not in an arrogant way no just it's just that a, you have your own worth and others that are around you should see that and if they don't they shouldn't be around you yeah and you should like yourself enough to feel confident in being able to say that. Yeah. You know, so I just, 
I smiled all the way through doing my research for this episode because I love her so much. I love I her too. I aspire to be her still. Like, you should aspire to be Eartha Kitt. A yeah. little bit more like Eartha every single day. Yeah. What a fucking name too. It's not Bertha. It's Eartha. Eartha. Like I never really thought about that. Yeah. It's a and really it's interesting name. Literally spelled like Earth with an A, which yeah. I love because it feels so earthy. It's very natural. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for our feminist favorites for Women's History Month. If there are any topics that you want us to cover in the future, you can email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. If you want to check out any of our merch, you can check out the link in our bio on our Instagram page or in the show notes wherever you're listening. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. And last but most certainly not least, if you haven't done so already, please pop on over to that Apple Podcast app and leave us a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show truly does help us more than you could possibly know. All right, that's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Goodbye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.